Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from the book of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, 
the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The word of the Lord. A reading from Romans. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors for though through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. We stand for the reading of the gospel. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. 
Let's pray. Lord, we do pray through your word, through your spirit, through your church, that you would continue to teach each one of us what it looks like to take up our cross and to follow you. And Lord, may you give us a strength beyond ourselves through your spirit that we would follow wherever you lead. We give you thanks and praise. And we pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. One of our uh, Lenten disciplines as a church uh, this year is uh, having really long Old Testament readings. So, um, so anyway, we're two weeks into Lent, so Pete, don't let us down next week. Let's get a, last week we had a whole chapter, so I thought, let's do a chapter and a half uh, uh, this week, but Nehemiah, it's good stuff. So um, uh, another thing we were doing in Lent, a tradition of ours, and actually we pray this prayer sometimes in other seasons as well, but we pray a prayer called the Prayer of Humble Access. Um, uh, we pray that at the end of our uh, communion um, liturgy, Uh, You can see it there on page um, 13. Many of you are familiar with it. It begins with those uh, striking words, we do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. That's a prayer actually that was first included in the 1552 prayer book. It has its roots in um, ancient prayers. It's powerful. It's a powerful reminder that as we come to the Lord, we do not come with presumption. We do not presume upon the Lord. He is the Lord. We are his servants, right? And so we don't make demands of him. We come in submission. There's a number of passages of scripture that are referenced um, in uh, that prayer. One that's sort of not directly referenced, but I think is very much in the spirit of that prayer comes from Luke 17, where Jesus said this to his disciples. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come in once and recline a table. Will he not rather not say to him, prepare supper for me, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus is reminding right, his disciples, right? God doesn't owe you anything. You are his servants. And yet, of course, he also taught earlier in the gospel, Luke, he said this, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. But father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent. For if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who asks for him. So Jesus teaches us we are servants, right? God is the king, but also we are children. And God is our father. And God our father says, come, right? Seek, ask, knock on the door. I want to give you good gifts. I'll give you the Holy Spirit, right? The most precious and um, life-giving gift there is. And so again, as we approach the Lord, we do not approach with presumption. We remember, right, the humility that we are called to, but we do approach with expectation. We approach as children, right? Eager to bring our requests to the Lord, right? Just as children are eager to bring their requests and their petitions and their questions to their parents. And so what does expectation look like, right? We don't want to be presumptuous in our relationship with the Lord. We, again, we don't want to make demands of Almighty God, and yet we can be expected. 
And I believe Nehemiah in this uh, passage right at the beginning of Nehemiah is modeling for us, is helping us to understand what does expectancy look like, right, in our prayers to the Lord. And so um, uh, we've been in a series on Ezra and Nehemiah, right? They're two books that very much go together. Again, this is our first week in uh, Nehemiah. But as we look at this prayer, again, I want to consider how this prayer of expectancy first comes from, right, a belief in who God is, a knowledge of the character and the actions of God. And so, um, uh, before we look at this prayer, just a little bit of context. Uh, just a reminder, right, if you've been following with us, if you're familiar with the, the, these books, uh, they're about basically the people of God, the Israelites, returning to the promised land after a time in exile. So Ezra begins with the announcement that uh, people can return um, to the promised land, right? Not only that, but actually they're commissioned by the king of Persia to rebuild their temple. And there's a group that's called the remnant, they become called as the remnant, who actually return and begin to rebuild Jerusalem and begin to settle again um, in Judah and rebuild um, the temple. And we've been reading about that in Ezra. They've uh, faced great challenges in that. They've faced at times threats from the people around them but they've also um, experienced great blessings. And we saw in the last couple of weeks, Ezra actually, much later in the book in Ezra, shows up. It's actually decades after the people have returned to the promised land. Ezra comes and he comes as a teacher of the law. And he begins to teach people, right? This is how we live according to the law. Many of them weren't familiar with the scriptures and they need Ezra to teach them. And we saw last week where Ezra is told, right, of a sinful pattern among the people and Ezra leads the people in a prayer of confession. And he calls them to turn away from their sin. And we actually see a lot of um, similarities uh, between uh, that uh, prayer of Ezra's and what happened with um, Ezra in, and then in what's happening with Nehemiah here. Like Ezra, right? Nehemiah is told, here's something that's happening among the people, among the Israelites, among the remnant that are in the land. And Nehemiah is heartbroken. They, told him, they tell him, verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, they are in great trouble and shame. For the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, we've talked about a couple times in this um, uh, series and looking at Ezra and Nehemiah that sometimes the chronology in uh, these books is not always clear. Sometimes we're not sure if things are being told in chronological order, right? And there are actually big time periods at times that are skipped over in the books. Um, so we don't know for sure what moment this is referring to, but it may be that this information about the walls um, being um, broken down and the gates being destroyed could be tying into Ezra chapter 4 where, again, the people are starting to rebuild the walls and to work on this destruction, and they're actually stopped by their neighbors and told not to do it, and then the neighbors appeal to the king of Persia, and the king says, yeah, you're right. You know, don't let those Israelites do that, right? They're untrustworthy, right? They shouldn't do that. And it's possible, again, we don't know uh, for sure there's some debate, but it's possible, actually, the king who said, don't let them keep rebuilding is this King Artaxerxes, who shows up in the second half of this reading, right? So it may be, I mean, that kind of sets, right? It may be that Nehemiah is going to the very king who said, don't build the walls, to make a request to build the walls. It could be that this is happening later. There are actually multiple King Artaxerxes, and so it gets a little confusing in that regard. Whatever the case, we know that Nehemiah, again, is brokenhearted, right? Now, he's you know, he's got a very good job. We'll, we'll talk about that. But he's got a plumb position right in the palace. He could say, oh, well, you know, their problem. But again, he feels such a bond with his people, with the people of Israel, the Jewish people, that he hears his words, he sits down, he weeps, and we're told he mourns for days. 
And like Ezra, when Ezra heard about the sin of the people, Nehemiah, when he hears about the need of the people, he begins to fast and pray. Right? That's his response. I will speak to God about this. Again, he's remembering the character of God. God invites his people to cry out to him and to speak to him. And this is what he does. And he begins again acknowledging who is God? Who is the one I am praying to right now? O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he begins in that place. Who are you, God? You are the awesome God. You are the God of steadfast love. And then, pretty quickly, he moves to confession, which is interesting. Again, we saw that last week. Ezra, right, hears about the sin, and he confesses. And he doesn't just confess his own sin. He confesses the sin of the people. He doesn't just con confess the, the present sin. He acknowledges the past sin. And Nehemiah does something very similar, right? He, as he's praying, as he's crying out to God, he acknowledges, verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses, right? He says, even I, my father's house, have sinned. And so the first thing we can say as we think about expectant prayer is that we can expect, right? We know that the Lord warns us, right? The sin has consequences, right? Sin brings difficulty, right? Sin, as I said last week, is the way of death, and God calls us to the way of life. And so we can expect, right, that the Lord calls us to repentance, right? It's why we, again, pray confession every week as part of our services, why we have seasons like Lent, right? Because this is part of our expectancy of the Lord is he calls his people to turn in repentance and to turn away from sin. And so that's where Nehemiah begins, right? I acknowledge our sinfulness. I acknowledge that the very reason, right, Jerusalem was destroyed in the first place is because we continued to turn away from you and to follow false gods. But then verse 9, but, right, quoting the Lord, if you return to me and keep my commandments, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and I will bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So he's remembering their past sin, but he's also remembering the promises of God. As he's remembering, God, you have said that if we repent and turn back to you, that you will settle us again in the land and you will make your name dwell there. So he hears about the destruction, he hears about the walls being broken down, and he's praying for restoration, right? For literal restoration, right? For walls to be restored, for the city to be restored, because he knows that God has said, I will make my name dwell there. These are my people, right? I will not forsake them, I will remain with them. And that's seen in his provision, right? His presence is seen in that the city is built up again. So, so the, the um, prayer, right, is an expectancy of, yes, we expect, right, consequences of our sin, but we also expect, Lord, you to intervene and to answer our prayers. We expect you to rebuild us because that's what you said you would do. And the expectation then leads to some very specific prayers, right? You, um, to the prayer of your servants, listen to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, give success to your servants. So he's praying for himself, right? Speaking the third person, but he's talking about himself. Give me success, Lord, in this plan that's becoming clear in my mind and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Who's this man? Well, the answer is right there. I was cupbearer to the king. It's such a dramatic moment. I love it, right? You know, it ends, the chapter ends, right? I'm cupbearer to the king. It's like, oh my gosh, that's a really important role. Again, I'll talk more about that role, but we can see, oh, he's praying for success. He's praying for mercy and he actually has the opportunity to have a conversation with the king, to bring these requests directly to the king. But then, right, notice he says, um, again, give success this day. Right? Give success to your servant today. Right? There's an urgency here. 
And yet chapter two, in the month of Nisan, that's four months later. So he's prayed, give me success today, but then it's not until four months later that he actually has this opportunity to bring his requests to the king, right? And so, um, again, I see in that a lack of presumption on Nehemiah's part, right? He doesn't say to the Lord, Lord, you must give me success, and I'm going to march in right now and tell that king, you know, what he needs to do because I'm trusting in you, Lord. Sort of, I'm going to force your hand, God, to act in the way I think you should act. Rather, he brings that request before God expectantly, and then he waits. He waits on the Lord. Lord, how will you answer this? How will you show your mercy? And it's four months later that he gets the sense, ooh, I think this is the moment I've been praying for, right? I think this is the answer. After a time of waiting, right, there's a day where the king sees the sadness of his face, right? Apparently, he just can't hold it in anymore, right? He can't pretend anymore that he's not brokenhearted over his people. The king actually has some great insight, right? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Clearly, right, there's something weighing on you. And then it says, end of verse 2, then I was very much afraid. We may wonder, why was he afraid? Like, this is the moment he's been waiting for, right? The king is basically asking him a question, what's wrong with you? Here's his moment. Why is he afraid? Well, it's actually interesting to think about the difference between his request to Almighty God and his request of this king, right? One is much more powerful than the other one, right? One is much more holy than the other one. And yet, when he makes a request to God, he can do so again, knowing, I belong to the Lord. But the Lord has called his people to make requests to him. I should bring my request before him. When he makes a request to the king, he knows he has to be very careful. Kings can be capricious. The king may decide, I like that request. or The king may decide, I don't like that request. And now you're out, right? Out in possibly a variety of ways. In the book of Esther, which is, takes place um, right after this, or in the scriptures, right, is the next book after this. If you remember the story of Esther, Esther is married um, to the king, right? She's the queen, and she is being asked by her um, cousin, who's also like a father figure to her, uh, Mordecai is saying, Esther, you need to go to the king, and you need to, you know, um, tell him that our people are going to be destroyed if he doesn't stop it. And Esther responds and says this, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Right? So Esther understands, even as the king's wife, if I go in and make a request and it's not received by the king, I could be put to death. And so Nehemiah has this moment, right? I mean, I've made a request to God. It seems that God, right, is answering this opportunity, but he's afraid. But he goes for it, right? I mean, it's the moment he's been waiting for. He begins and he tells the king, Right? Of course, I'm sad. My, the play, my homeland is in, in ruins. Right? The, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins. Right? He's, he's uh, appealing right, to Artaxerxes' heart. Right? I mean, think about where your fathers are buried. This is where my fathers are buried. Um, and uh, the king then says, what are you requesting? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. The end of verse 4. Right? Nehemiah, once again, he's talking to one king. And he's talking to another king at the same time. Right? He's talking to King Artaxerxes. But he's also crying out to God. You're asking me for my request. Lord, you know, this is the moment. Give me favor, right? Give me mercy. Give me success. And he says to the king, if it pleases the king, and I found favor in your sight, let me go, right? Let me re rebuild, right? Let me lead the process of rebuilding the walls. And then when the king basically gives him permission, right? And asking, how long will you be away? In other words, saying, I will grant you to leave. Then Nehemiah, he's ready. 
right? He's like, okay, well, this is what I need, right? I need, you know, safe travels. I need wood to rebuild. I mean, it's, it's wild, isn't it? It's like, wow, here he has this moment, and he's ready with the list of things he needs, right? And I read that, and I say, during that time of waiting, as he was waiting for this moment for God to open this door and give him this opportunity, right, God's preparing him. God's making him ready. So he's ready to give a request. And God works in our waiting. Oftentimes in our waiting, right, God is preparing us for that next thing. He's preparing us for the time when the, when the waiting comes, when the waiting ends. Right? We know no matter what, God works in waiting. I mean, we can read this and we can be like four months. I mean, that's not that long to wait, right? But for Nehemiah, I'm sure it was very long. And also when we look at the scriptures, we see a lot longer time of waiting. Joshua waited for years, right? Um, uh, Joshua, Joseph waited for years, right, in prison right, for the Lord uh, to release him, right? The, the people of, of Israel waited for years and years and years in Egypt, in slavery, before God set them free. Or I think of Simeon, Simeon in the New Testament, who was told before he died that he would see the Messiah. In the final years of his life, he enters into the temple, right? And the Lord tells him that Jesus, who's still a young child, is the Messiah, And so God works in waiting. And sometimes he makes us wait a long time. But again, to live in expectancy of the Lord, to pray in expectancy is to say, Lord, how are you working in this waiting? How are you preparing me, right? What are you teaching me even in this time? And again, I think we see that heart in Nehemiah. He's ready. So again, Nehemiah's prayer of expectancy comes from who the Lord is. The Lord is holy. The Lord is a redeemer. The Lord is a restorer. Right? And the Lord is one who sometimes makes us wait. Right? The Lord is one who knows the right timing, and sometimes that's different from our timing. But even in that, there's expectation. Right? Even in that, there's hope. So the prayer comes out of who is God, but the prayer of Nehemiah also grows out of who Nehemiah is. Right? He prays expectantly because he knows his own identity. And first and foremost, his identity is one who is loved by God just as our identity. First and foremost, our core identity are ones who belong to God and are loved by him. Again, verse five, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He is a member of God's people. He is loved by God. He is a member of the covenant people. He knows the steadfast love of the Lord and he prays out of that. Again, that's the contrast, right? He can bring any request um, to, the, to the Lord King, right? Because he knows, I belong to him. I'm loved by him, right? I don't know for sure if Artaxerxes loves me, but I know God loves me, and I can bring my request to him. And so it's that core identity that he expects the Lord to answer and to care about his needs and to care about the city of Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem. But he also prays out of a second identity. We could say kind of a, a secondary identity, Again, our core identity is we are children of God. We are loved by him, right? We are called to live everything out and to pray out of that identity. But not only is he one who belongs to God, but he's cupbearer to the king, right? That identity affects the way he prays. Give me success. Give me mercy in the sight of this man who I serve because I'm cupbearer to the king. Now, what does it mean to be cupbearer to the king? Like, what does that involve? Well, the primary responsibility of the cupbearer of the king is to make sure the king is not poisoned, right? To make sure he's not given poison wine. And maybe we hear that and we think, that doesn't sound like a great job, right? I mean, like drinking wine that may be poisoned and making sure, and so maybe you think kind of the king's like, I just find me somebody, right? Just find me some guy to drink my wine for me. But it's actually an extremely important job because you want to trust 
the person who's drinking your wine to make sure it's not poison. You want to know they're not going to poison you. So it's actually a job of a lot of responsibility. So I just um, heard this um, uh, recently, a little background information here. So um, this table here that has the elements on it is called the credence table. Okay, so now you know. If someone asks what's the name of that table, you know. The credence table. Um, and credence, of course, means like to believe in, right? So we talk about the creed, all right? The Nicene Creed, to believe in. Um, and the reason it's called a credence table is because in palaces, like the one um, in this moment, uh, when the cupbearer had determined that the wine was safe and was able to be drunk by um, the king and by others, right, in the royal palace, he put it on the credence table, right? Believe, trust that this is good wine. And that name just stuck as a table that has wine on it. And so now we use it today. So there you go. Um, and so again, that brings home the trust that the cupbearer um, needed to have, right? And actually we see um, both in another place in scripture and in other ancient documents, the cupbearers often had other responsibilities. And so in 2 Kings, there's a, a person who has the title cupbearer, who's um, the cupbearer to the king of Assyria, but who's in charge actually of military strategy for the king of Assyria, so he's the cupbearer, but he does a lot more than just taste wine, right? Or again, in other ancient documents, we see cupbearers who were major advisors, right? Who were sort of one of the closest confidants of the king. And so he says, I was cupbearer to the king, right? He's acknowledging, I've been given immense responsibility, right? I've been given this place of incredible trust. I actually talk to the king, and that affects the way I pray. And so for us too, right, as we think about praying to the Lord in expectancy, Again, first and foremost, we are children of God, but we also are parents, right? Or teachers, right? Or lawyers, right? Or accountants, or whatever those various other identities that we have. And we say, Lord, in light of this identity, show me how to pray, right? And what should I be expecting in light of the place you have put me, in light of the responsibilities that you have given me, how can I pray, right? And sometimes we'll talk about um, how we need to be willing in our prayers to be an answer to our own prayers, and what I mean by that is um, if you think of like when Jesus said to the disciples, right, um, the, the, what, the fields are white unto harvest, saying there are people who are ready to hear the good news. There are people who need to know, right, that the kingdom is coming through me. And then he says, pray for workers, right? And when the disciples prayed for workers, who were they praying for? Well, they were praying for a lot of people, but one of the people they were praying for is themselves because they were the first workers to go out and to share the good news. And so there was a willingness in their prayer to be answers to their own prayer. Right? And same for us, right? as we pray. Right? What, are you, what are you praying for? Right? As we pray for kindness right? in our country. So you think, Lord, our country is so divided. It's such an angry place. Like, make our world more kind. And we can say, Lord, how am I an answer to that prayer? If we're praying for our children, for parents, Lord, bless my children. Right? Build them up. Give them a, a knowledge of you. How am I an answer to that prayer? If we're praying for our workplace, Lord, may my workplace be a place of peace. May it be a place of integrity a place of value, where people are valued, how am I going to answer that prayer? And so again, as we pray, we can say, Lord, you've given me responsibilities. We're, we're big on vocation here. And vocation isn't just, you know, make sure to share your faith in your workplace, although, yes, we pray that God give us opportunities to do that. Vocation is God has given you gifts and abilities, right? And he'll use those. And so to pray, Lord, how are you using me and how can I expect you to use me in this place? Right? Nehemiah 
To be cupbearer of the king means he's got some probably significant leadership gifts. We're going to see that as we continue. He's, he's got strategy, right? He's, he's a clear thinker, right? He's clearly an influential person. And so he's praying in light of that, right? That's not, you know, a lacking humility. That's just saying, God, you've given me these abilities and these gifts. Please use me. Now, I want to be clear when I say we're an answer to our own prayer. We're not the only answer to our own prayer. I'm not saying that prayer is just a pep talk, right, that we give to ourselves. You know, make, make me strong, you know, that actually we need God's intervention and we need the help of others. We need God to supernaturally be at work. But often, right, he's asking us, how can I work through you? Are you willing, right? Is there an expectation of how you will use me? And clearly, as we see in this passage and as we'll continue to see, Right? Um, Nehemiah's expectation of God's using of him right, leads to great fruitfulness and leads to great blessing. I was just having a conversation with my son, Aiden, recently, and we were talking about how as we grow in this expectation, right, as we respond to God's um, invitation, ask, seek, knock, bring your request to me, actually, sometimes as we live into that, it can actually lead to greater disappointment. We may actually find, man, God, I'm bringing these prayer requests to you, and you're not answering in the way I want it, right? I'm actually experiencing some trials, right? Which maybe we wouldn't experience if we didn't ask of anything of God, right? If we don't ask anything of God, then hey, I'm fine. You know, I'm not expecting anything from him. But he invites us to ask. But sometimes that actually is calling us to a deeper place of trust. Sometimes again, maybe there's a refining. Maybe that's what taking up our cross and following him looks like. Is to say, Lord, I'm gonna keep asking. And I think sometimes when we struggle in our faith, we may not struggle with believing in God or struggle in hoping and, you know, uh, eternal life, but maybe our struggle is just living in expectancy of continuing to live as a child of God. I think sometimes actually we may even feel like, oh, well, maybe it's a more mature faith to just say, I'm not going to ask anything of God, right? You know, I won't ask anything of him. That's how, you know, mature I am in my faith. And yet that doesn't correspond to what the scriptures call us to. We just heard in, in Romans 8, how much more, right, will the, the Lord give you? If he didn't spare his own, his own son, how much more does the Lord want to give you? What abundance does the Lord have for you? Right? As the book of James says, we do not have because we do not ask. And so let's just finish with praying that the Lord would grow us in expectancy. And maybe for some of that's a, that's a renewed expectancy. Maybe for them, that's, that's something new, right? Maybe we feel like, I don't know, you know, that's hard for me to ask for things of the Lord. Maybe for some of that's just a strengthening. Now let's, let's pray. Lord, in this um, season of Lent and in all seasons, Lord, we know you call us to pray. And Lord, as we consider Ezra and Nehemiah, um, faulty and imperfect men, but men who demonstrate for us, Lord, that we can come to you with our needs, with our confessions. Lord, we pray that you would grow us um, through your spirit in that place of expectancy, of bringing our requests to you, bringing our prayers to you, knowing that you hear those and waiting on you to respond. And I pray especially for those today, maybe that are in a place of waiting, in a place of disillusionment in their faith, that are struggling, Lord, to trust you as Father, that you would renew that hope, you renew the expectancy. Lord, help us not forget who you are. Help us not forget who we are in you. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <coughs> Please stand. We do affirm our faith, our beliefs together in the words of the Nicene Creed.